0: Carchemish was the crown jewel of the Mitanni Kingdom, and King Tisrata could not stop the northern Hittite armies of King Suppiluliuma from overrunning his beautiful city. Located on the most strategic site of the upper Euphrates River at the modern-day border between Syria and Turkey, the city of Carchemish was on a major east-to-west thoroughfare that connected the ancient Middle East. From the cradle of civilization to the copper mines of Elashia, modern day Cyprus, it even went further into Egypt's empire ruled by the Pharaoh Akhenaten. After the fall of Carchemish, Tushrada suffered defeat after defeat as the Hittites encroached on the Mitanni kingdom town by town. The continuous advance of the Hittite armies shrank the Mitanni influence on the world stage, causing a shift of alliances with Egypt. The Amorites welcomed this turmoil because it offered a chance to make a deal with the next regional superpower. And Girgis, the scribe of Byblos's mayor, Bribhata, would be the learned man amongst these fringe fighters.
1: CHAPTER Twenty-One, CARCAMUS Intent on appeasing the gods of the newly conquered Carchemus, High Priest Bentepshari led a procession to the Euphrates River. Gathering an armload of clay from the riverbank, he added honey to the mud and molded figurines of the gods in the shape of daggers, symbols of the underworld. The priest carefully arranged the idols on the ground and used a bronze dagger to dig a pit in front of them. He then poured oil, honey, and wine into the hole, and added a piece of silver as payment to the gods. Burying the offerings as he prayed, he hoped the gods of Carchemus were listening. At his signal a subordinate dragged a bellowing lamb to the site. Pentapshari offered more prayers, then slit the lamb's throat, sacrificing the animal to appease the restless gods. Meanwhile, two chariots, carrying Girgus, Aziru, and his men, made their way to the Carcamas southwestern gate. "'There! Do you see the walls, Girgos? That's Carcamus. Aziru yelled over the rumbling of chariot wheels. Aziru and Girgos rode in one chariot. Hubalit and Cooter commanded the other. They made good time traveling the foothills of northern Syria, as Aziru had Amorite connections all along this northern frontier, a life-saving convenience when traveling unfamiliar terrain. Although driving a chariot at 12 to 15 miles an hour is slow by today's standards, Back then, it was an excellent speed. The well-kept roads wound through rolling hills and swales as the fallow, barren fields of winter unfolded around them. Ahead of him, jutting skyward, Girgos saw the human-made megalith called Carchemis, a magnificent acropolis, perched high on a hill above a protective stone wall. As they drew closer, Girgos wondered how builders had moved the huge orthostats multi-ton slabs of granite to their spot at the bottom of the earthen ramparts. Placed to prevent battering rams from making their unwanted entry into carcamus, these brown walls gleamed in the waning daylight. Finally, Gergos said as they approached the gate. Even keeping the horses at a steady, unrelenting, and painful trot, it had taken them an entire long day to arrive. Gergos wasn't a horseman, nor was he a soldier and if it weren't necessary for him, he wouldn't be here. This trip was dangerous, but the world was in severe upheaval, motivating Girgos to leave both Egyptian protection and his family. He had agreed to meet with Shirta, but never in his furthest imaginations did he think he would talk to the Hittites. Besides acting as an agent for Ribhada, Girgos needed to find security for himself and his family, in the event Gubla fell into chaos, and the Amuru had treated him with respect. To them, Gergos was a diplomatic treasure. His ability to read and write could move kingdoms. Azira's father, Abdiasherta, knew his people, the Amorites, must develop a dialogue with the growing Hittite power. The prior agreements with King Tushratta, the Mitanni king, had crumbled into emptiness. There was too much chaos within the Mitanni kingdom for Abdiasherta to rely on the old treaties. He knew Tushrata could deliver nothing. Now was his opportunity to open the dialogue by sending his son, Angirgus, an Egyptian emissary, to meet Supiluliuma, the great Hittite king. Surprised to see two lone chariots approaching, the guards flew into a flurry of movement. Soldiers poured from the guardhouse like ants bubbling from the ground. "'Wubalit! Kuder, Stay quiet!' Azura yelled when he saw the soldiers gathering. "'I will talk to them. Set your hands high. Keep your palms open!' Muttering under his breath, Girgos raised his hands halfway above his head. "'Whoa!' Aziru stopped the chariot when the first two soldiers were within fifteen feet. "'We mean no harm. We are envoys of Abdiashirta.' The captain of the guards kept them waiting outside the city, while he sent an emissary with news of their arrival to the palace. The runner returned thirty minutes later and reported to his captain. "'You are welcome in Carchamus,' the captain said. "'Follow my men.' The chariots followed a line of eight helmeted soldiers holding lances and shields through the village corridor. Townspeople gathered excitedly. Two unguarded chariots, driven by ununiformed men, were unusual. The creaking chariots stopped at the ruling class gate, which opened into the citadel, where the religious and administrative workers mingled, and the royals lived. fellow waved them forward, directing them to the stables. Aziru and Girgos left the chariots with Mubalit and Kudur to seek a welcome inside the palace. They walked along a wall of granite orthostats, carved stones placed around the upper citadel for protection. The line of stone opened only in one place, at the king's gate. Serving as both decorations and billboards, displaying scenes of history, religion, and life, the intricately carved boulders were the final protective barrier. Girgis studied them as they walked by. One orthostat showed three mechanics in long woolen thobs, Hufting a solid wooden wheel, while a fourth fellow blew his horn. The next one depicted soldiers and priests performing their daily activities. Three priests marched in a procession on the third stone. One could tell their profession, as they wore long robes of linen with wigged headdresses atop their heads. The first was holding a scepter. The second man carried a chalice. And the third had a teclet, a flaxen tassel stained blue with Canaanite dye, hanging from his wrist. Another orthostat showed three more priests, each walking while holding upright sprigs of herbs in their hands. The final rock on the right displayed two hunters with slain gazelles hefted across their shoulders, bringing food to the king. This motif was mirrored on the opposite side of the gate. Girgos and Azuru followed the soldier through this elaborate entryway into a large, open-air, paved courtyard. The building in front of them was the Temple of Ishtar. From ancient times, the goddess had watched the city. The group skewed to the right, skirted the temple, and walked alongside more formed and fitted orthostats. Then they turned left, along the side of the temple, and came onto a grand stairway leading to the royal palace at the top of the city, the administrative hub of Carchemis. Girgos and Aziru walked up the wide, hewn limestone steps to the citadel. At the top, they had a bird's-eye view of the entire city of Carcamas and grand vistas north and south along the Euphrates River. Ready? Aziro asked Kyrgos. Mm hmm. Kyrgos nodded in reply. The temples had a complex series of entry rooms, which doubled as killing places that could be entirely closed in a threat. It was the final opportunity to stop an intruder from harming the king. These rooms had guards and weapons in them at all times. Kyrgos was nervous. But excited to open a dialogue with a new kingdom. As they entered the royal chamber, Prince Piasili stood, waiting for them. I am Aziru, the son of Abdiya Shirta, Aziru proclaimed. I bring you my father's greeting. I am Prince Piasili. My father, King Supiluliuma, welcomes you. The prince was in his early twenties, with short cropped, light brown hair, and a clean shaven face. He wore a loose-fitting, thick, dark wool cape. Girgos noticed the man's copper-leafed armor dropped below his cloak and hung to the level of his knee. Under the armor was another thick layer of wool, lighter in color, with an embroidered hem. His thick leather boots were combat style, which laced up to the middle of his calf and disappeared under the stitched hem of the robe. An older, light-skinned, blond haired man stepped forward and spoke. Welcome, he said. I am Bentapshari, high priest of King Supiluliuma. The king welcomes you. His clean shaven head and the linen full-length thob he wore were the evidence of his priesthood. A six-inch emerald green sash around his waist suggested Bentapshari was a mighty man of the robe. His flaxen dress, dyed a light blue, looked regal. Its darker blue fringes dropped below his knees and shimmered as he shifted his stance. His boots, made of sturdy brown leather, belied any hint of a sedentary, quiet life behind the temple walls. A handsome man, Bentepshari, projected a confident aura, and was the person in charge. Girgus immediately liked him. Thank you, High Priest Bentepshari. I am Girgus, scribe for Ribhada, the Mayor of Gubla. I offer myself as the communicator between your King and my Pharaoh Akhenaten and I am further here to offer you an alliance with Abdiyashurta, leader of the Amorites. He is sending these as gifts." Girgis handed him a clay tablet he had made. "'Thank you,' replied the priest. "'There is much to discuss. Come this way.' Pentipshari directed everyone into a large inner chamber, appointed with expensive furniture, thick rugs on the stone floor, and colored frescoes painted on the walls. What news do you bring from Akhenaten? Bentipshari asked as they settled in the inner court. Well, Girgos began, no one knows what Pharaoh is thinking. We have asked for Egyptian guidance several times in recent months, but have received no answers. Rephada feels we must seek other alliances. Bentipshari paused, but showed no sign of the pleasure he felt. It was what he had hoped for, this turmoil in Egypt. But he did not yet know the scribe's real allegiances. Why are you here? he asked. I am a temporary scribe for Shirta, and I am here as Akhenaten's representative, if you wish that path. My purpose is to seek sanctuary for myself and my family if Gubla becomes too dangerous. Girgos, you have made a wise move leaving Egypt. Akhenaten is afraid to come to Gubla because he has heard of what happened north, in Samira. Is Akhenaten afraid of Supiluliuma's armies? Girgos asked. No, ben replied, looking into the scribe's eyes, wondering if he were being played. Akhenaten, the great pharaoh of Egypt, is afraid to come because of a pestilence that began in Samira, an illness his gods cannot or will not control. None of his generals have reported any sickness in Egypt, but they tell Akhenaten every day to stay in Egypt. That makes sense, the scribe replied. That is why we have received so little response from the pharaoh, He's waiting for the pestilence to recede. Or he's looking for a new god to stop the disease, Bentapchari said. Nikamaru of Ugarit tells me Akhenaten is asking for Ishtar's help. Girgos looked surprised. Bentapchari turned his head. Clear the room of everyone but Girgos," he commanded, and close the door. He moved closer to the scribe. "Girgos, the list of gifts you gave me proclaims Canaanite dye. That is a royal, divine color." How did it get into Abdiyashurta's possession? Girgus shrugged his shoulders. Pentapshari looked at the scribe. Where did he get it? Where was it going? Pentapshari could be a powerful ally. A foolish lie to this man, at this delicate point, could undermine the trust between them. Girgus responded with the truth as he knew it. The die came from a raid along the trading route between Kadesh and Katna, he explained. Bentepshari nodded. Nikmaru told me Akhenaten was sending dye to King Tashra, as payment for sending the statue of Ishtar to Egypt, Bentepshari said. Is it the same dye? Did they steal it to redirect Ishtar's power? I do not think Abhyashirta knows the power of Ishtar, Bentipshari. Why do you say that? The caravan wasn't targeted because it involved the goddess. It was just the dumb luck of thieves. Abdiashirta is an Amorite, of the Habiru hill people, they have primitive gods. They know nothing of Ishtar. Pentapshari thought a moment, but Abdi-Ashirta is gaining power through alliances. He responded, as his power grows, he will come looking for more powerful gods. I do not understand, Girgus. As I see it, the Amorites' weakness is they are uncivilized. As they become organized and form alliances, Abdi-Ashirta, their leader, will need stronger gods. The more powerful the god, the stronger Abdyashirta will be. He does not see Ishtar's wonder yet. I still don't understand, Betipshari. I, I'm sorry if I portray a lack of knowledge as hiding something, but I cannot see your point. You have operated under Egyptian rules, Girgis. For eighteen years, Akhenaten has maintained Aten as the one supreme god, ignoring all others. Now the angered Amun priests refuse to share their gods with him, and Pharaoh must look elsewhere for the protection he seeks. He asked Tushwada to send him Ishtar, repeating a request his father, Amenhotep, made years earlier. And Ishtar went to Amenhotep, to Egypt? Yes, Tushwada sent the statue to Akhenaten's father years ago. Now his son requests similar help. He worries of the plague and the growing Hittite threat. They will disrupt Egypt's timber, copper, and dye imports. Oh, the scribe replied. It is time to find Ishtar, Bentebchari said. We must deter her from going to Egypt. But her statue has been stolen, Girgis exclaimed. It has been deterred. Bentebchari waved his hand in irritation. I am no longer speaking of her statue, Girgus Ishtar herself has come to earth. Dikmaru of Ugarit says she is in Lalish. I want you to accompany me to talk to Ishtar. I need you as a diplomatic attache. But, Bentebchari, my family awaits me in Gubla. There is great unrest. Someone needs to help them, to protect them. I understand your worry, but bring that up with Abdiyashirta. You are helping him, and now he owes you a debt. If he is not the victor, then you have allied yourself wrongly. I need a guarantee a Zero will not make a treaty with someone else in a week. Overwhelmed with these high-level manipulations, Girgos felt small for the first time in his life, and it was unnerving. He knew he must school himself in the politics of the Amorites and the Hittites if he was to survive. In all honesty, I believe Abdiyashirta wants this alliance with you, he replied. He and his son, Aziru, have both told me the same thing. I believe they are gathering the forces to be victorious. They will be much stronger with you on their side. End of chapter
0: Thank you for listening. You can follow the story on my blog, jeadvm.com. Once on my blog's front page, go to the menu, pick my books, and select Katie Becomes Ishtar. That'll take you to the Ancient Katie series of books. Inconvenient Goddess can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book, or an e-book, as well as an audiobook set. Or can be downloaded from the audiobook site Spotify. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com.